The Lord be with you. So from today's hymn of the day, I went off on hymns quite a bit uh, last week or so, but I just want to draw your attention to today's, uh, today's hymn of the day. From the Reformation era, you know, it's like on the bulletins, uh, you've got a little bit of the, depending, it's weird, the way the Lutheran Service Builder, which is the technology that generates the hymns, and puts it in the bulletin, sometimes it gives you more information than not. But if you're looking in the hymnal, it'll say like, who wrote the hymn, when it was written, who wrote the text of the hymn, uh, all that kind of useful information. It's kind of interesting if you're, when you start learning the, the time periods of what's happening in the world, what's happening in Germany. So Fabricius writing like really in the midst of the Reformation in, in the early 1600s, you got the 30 years war that's happening. Uh, there's people dying of plagues. There's so much terrible stuff that's happening. So some of the best hymns and our Lutheran history come from the 1600s, which is arguably the worst time to be a human. Well, I mean, one of the worst times. I mean, you think about all the terrible things that are happening. I mean, so you think about like, if you're a Christian, Christians are killing each other off for having different views of the Lord's Supper. So it's like, it's not like the Christians against the world. It's like the Christians against the Christians. Uh, and then certainly the world's influencing there. But this hymn in particular is, is helpful because it's an old, old hymn, maybe not as familiar. A lot of the great Lutheran hymns were, uh, they didn't make it into like the old TLH, which is the old hymnal that was first, the first English hymnal. And, uh, or they came into the first English hymnal with weird, um, written to weird harmonies. So then the LW that was written in the 80s and most of us in our maybe 30s, 40s, and 50s grew up with, that would just massacre great hymns because they took familiar hymns and they like arranged it to really weird music that's impossible to sing in harmonies. And so a lot of the great hymns were never even embraced by the congregation. So finally, um, in the early 2000s when they came out with the LSB, our hymnal, they finally set some great hymns to great texts but if you'll notice, the hymn of the day, the, the number in the hymnal is intentionally hymn 666, the mark of the devil, the mark of the beast. Uh, and the, notice the title of the hymn, O little flock, fear not the foe. I mean, just the text, uh, there might a joke, a mere facade. Uh, o little flock, fear not the foe, who madly seeks your overthrow, dread not his rage and power. Though your courage sometimes faints, his seeming, seeming triumph over God's saints, that is, the devil's seeming to triumph over us, it lasts but a little hour. So be of good cheer. Your cause belongs to him who can avenge your wrongs. Leave it to him, our Lord. Be a, uh, as, as true as God's own word is true, not earth nor hell's satanic crew against us shall prevail. Their might, the might of the devil and his crew, their might, a joke, a mere facade. God is with us and we with God. Our victory cannot fail. So it's just this really triumphant power ballad and it's best song. You can find it on YouTube uh, when you're feeling especially anxious or worried or afraid. Uh, you can go to YouTube, type in, oh, little flock, fear not the foe. And the best one I found is it's basically just the lyrics that are popping up, but it's sung by children. 
It seems like this is one of those hymns that would be best sung by like a group of like power bass and tenors. Bum, 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 bum. But it's, it's little kids. And it's because it, it's the message that's carrying this and they're singing to the comfort of the, of the little flock, the sheep that seem to be harassed and devoured by the devil. Um, this harassment by the devil, it's, it's a mere facade. Their might, the might of the devil, a, a, a facade, a joke. It lasts but a little hour. And so that's the imagery there at the bottom of the picture on 19 and also the, some of the sheep on the cover there. Um, let's see, that's the hymn I wanted to mention. I, I told Beth, so I'm, I'm, I gotta finish this chapter today. So if I start talking about something else, keep me on track, but she's not here to, oh, there she is. She hadn't stopped me yet, so I'm gonna keep going. The other thing I wanna mention is at the end of the service, we say, uh, we go forth in our Lord's name. And there's a reason why we do that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Why is pastor falling asleep? Oh, it's the sugar crash. Okay. Uh, so it used to be, depending on, and I've joked about this before with you guys, at the end of the service, like, if I, when, when we finally change things, I think, to, to run more beautifully, we'll finish the closing hymn, and then we'll just recess out. The pastors, the acolytes, we're gone. And then the organist plays the postlude, and then you go about mingling, and then you come back in here, and then everyone kind of gathers in here. You sit down, and now I do the announcements, all that kind of stuff we do at the end, all because all the fellowship type stuff happens in here. But everything that's happening in there is just more of reverent, one directional from God to us kind of a thing. It's just it's, it's somewhat awkward from the pastor's perspective to we have this great reverence, and we kind of break down, and we're kind of joking at the end. It's it's a different thing. So. Um, but anyway, after all that, you have to say something. Like, otherwise, it's just like we finish the announcements and then me and Pastor Bartons and Schumacher just kind of awkwardly walk away. You can't say bye. You know, yeah, we say something. So historically in the Missouri Synod, like in the, basically through the 80s, I don't know what they said prior to the 80s. They probably just finished the service and walked out. Um, but in the 80s, when it became really, we're trying to be very like, user-friendly, seeker-sensitive. Uh, it's, it's part of the church growth idea of trying to make people feel more comfortable so they'll come back and so we'll have this announcement time. And, and then we have to transition out of it into Bible study time. So the things, this, the classic saying was, uh, go, uh, go, go in peace, serve the Lord, which isn't, which isn't a bad, it's not a bad thing, that's fine too. You're going in peace and as you're going about your life and your vocations, you're serving the Lord and that's totally fine. And uh, however, uh, that can also sometimes it was it was perceived that this was sending people out with law. So you've you've come to church, you've did you've been Mary instead of Martha. You know Mary's commended for sitting at the feet of Jesus and receiving his gifts. She's not Mary is the one who's not serving, and she's commended for choosing the better part. And you've received the gospel, you see the forgiveness of sins, the Lord's supper, you've the benediction. You're out of here now. Go and serve. It's like, wait a second, the one, that's the one thing that Mary wasn't commended for, and now you're kind of sending me out with law to do. Again, that's not bad, and it is biblical. I mean, it's the biblical idea is certainly there, but it starts to, especially when you consider a view of Mary and Martha, it's this kind of this tension of serving versus receiving. And so some were resistant to that, and especially here in, at Bethany, they changed that. I forget, I don't even know when they did it. It was like, go in, go in peace, you are free, 
which is a, sp a specific contrast to serve the Lord. Go in peace, you are free. Versus go in peace, serve the Lord, which seems to give me something to do. You are free actually gives me nothing to do. And so it wasn't, neither of those things are really bad. Um, and then we, we changed it a couple years ago only because I felt like go in peace, you are free was like, you've been in the shackles of the divine service for an hour. These announcements are running kind of long and you want to get out of here, go in, you are free. You're free to leave, finally. Like, Praise God, it's over. <laughs> um, so we changed it to, um, this is a kind of a, it's being used more along some of my, my uh, colleagues, simply stating the reality and reminding you that we bear the Lord's name. So as we can recall, we'll go over this in our new, new member class in a couple weeks, the, the preeminent place of the Lord's name in the divine service. We begin, what marks the beginning of the service is the, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He calls us together in his name. We bear his name. And where God has put his name, he's putting his presence. So he puts his name in the temple. He puts himself in the temple. He puts his name on us and says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. So we bear his name. He's called us all together in his name to receive the gifts belonging to his name, namely the forgiveness of sins. And then as the service concludes with a benediction, if you flip back and, and look in uh, Deuteronomy 6, it's in the context of the, the exact, the words of the benediction are spoken over God's people. And then the next line that doesn't make it into our service, it says, and by this, my people will know that my name is with them. So the benediction is actually giving the Lord's name to the people. So that as we leave the Lord's service, we came here bearing his name and now we leave bearing his name. So his name means so much. It's, it's that, that I belong to him. Just like when a parent puts, puts their kid's name on their water bottle or their lunchbox so you can identify whose it belongs to. We bear the Lord's name. We belong to the Lord, both now and into eternity. For he's the Lord of life. So that no matter what we face, even the foe, as we sang, fear little, oh, oh little flock, fear not the foe, uh, in the face of the devil himself, we belong to the Lord who's greater than the devil. We belong to the Lord of life. Um, in the face of our sins, we have for the forgiveness of sins. We have, our sins have been washed away through holy baptism. Our shame has been covered with the righteousness of Christ and holy baptism. You bear the Lord's name. So it's so profound to know that we leave here bearing his name as we serve the Lord in our various vocations. So we still sent out to serve. That's what it means in part to be a Christian, is to be a little Christ in this world, to serve my neighbor, uh, to speak the Lord's word of forgiveness to my neighbor as he, as he sends me out. So that's why we say that. It's good to, to just to kind of reinforce why we say it, because it's true. We're, we're simply stating a true reality. We leave here. We go forth from this place into our cars, into our homes, our neighborhoods, our community, our vocations, our jobs. All, we go back from here into all the headaches that we brought with us, all the things that were causing us anxiety, the frustrations of life, the worries of life. We leave here bearing the Lord's name. And that name changes everything. Uh, it, it, especially because it doesn't always feel like it changes everything. That was today's epistle lesson from Hebrews, that all these gifts they had by faith, not by sight. So the Lord is speaking his promises into our ears 
uh, we don't always see them. We usually don't see them. And so that's faith is clinging to what we hear over against what we see. And so our life is full of challenges and crosses and trials and things that cause us anxiety. We bear the Lord's name. And so we know that we're, we're okay. He's with us. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, so we fear not the foe. We fear not death and so forth. Okay. Beth, I remember I told you, don't let me go off subject. 15 minutes dead. Okay, here we go. Woe to the Pharisees and lawyers. Luke 12. I'm going to finish the Pharisees. Actually, we're going to finish chapter 11. And then chapter 12 continues railing on the Pharisees. So if you recall from last week, we're in Luke chapter 11, verse 43. But just to get us a running start into 43, I'll start at the back of your hand out there, the big, the big block. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees. That's where we left off last time with the woe, especially this contrast between the inside being dirty and being focused on the outside and neglecting the inside, neglecting the justice and mercy, neglecting the that we are to be showing love to their neighbor and yet they're focused on these, these detailed, tedious aspects of the law, which aren't themselves bad, because he even says in verse 42, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So they're only, whatever the laws are that they're kind of setting up, okay, fine, you can do those, but you can't, you can't have that over against justice and the love of God. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So what are the, why, why do they love the best seat in the synagogues? What, what is the best seat in the synagogue? Especially in the contrast of Jesus railing against it. Yeah. What's the best seat? Is <laughs> quick access to the exit. First to the donuts. <laughs> right. The, the best seat would be the, the seat that's, that's given the most honor or held to be in the most honor, the most recognized, right? So especially to, to kind of run with what you said, if it's the case, I mean, imagine the entire system. If you've been, if you've been raised up, crushed by the law, and, you're, and you're, all, you're only and always focused on external acts, then it's like you're trained up to think the person who's sitting right next to the, to the teacher is, that's the best seat because they got there first. It shows that they're super diligent and showing off to everybody their posture, right? Whatever it is. Uh, so, so there's that aspect to it. 
that if, if, that's your, if that's what you're looking for and that's why you're there, then, then that's the seat that they're trying to get. So now they're trying to get the seat, not because they actually can hear better or because they can see better or whatever, because they want, they're concerned about what everybody else sees. So Lutherans are a direct contrast to that. We want to make sure that no one sees us. So getting to church early so you can be sure to sit as far back as possible near the back. <laughs> so we, me and, uh, we joke about this. At seminary, the, the guy at seminary actually did it. The, the Paul Grimm, the, ch- the chapel director, whatever his name was, commi- uh, chapel organizer, uh, whatever his title, he would rope the back half of the, of the sanctuary especially during like the non, during the, the main divine services, we're usually packed house. But even then he would rope off the back three or four pews to force everybody closer. Cause it is kind of a weird thing, especially here at Bethany. Like I can remember, especially Saturday nights back in those days, I'd be like me and then a hundred feet. And then like 12 people in the back two pews. Like, come on, I want to like walk all the way up to you guys. So at seminary, he roped off the back pews. And so the best part, the professor, so the students were all like, we're just worried that we want to make sure we pass and get a call. So don't fail me. Don't make the professors mad. They have the power to, to, to put a hold on your getting a call, right? So you're, you're going along with this. Okay, I won't sit in these back pews. But the professor, like David Scare, these guys who've been there a long time, they walk in and the pew that they always sat at has a rope on it. He just takes the rope, throws it on the ground, sits in the pew that was in it. <laughs> Same thing happened here, like on uh, Saturday night or even, uh, Advent and Lent services are this way, because we only get like maybe 75 people, 100 people maybe. So it's kind of nice to have everybody together, kind of push everybody away from that far side and maybe closer to the middle toward the front. So we're kind of, it definitely is better for music when we're singing. But inevitably, so a rope, I would turn off the lights on that far side and I would put a rope over there and I'd go get ready and I'd come back out and the lights are on, the rope's gone, there's people sitting over there. What happened? I want to put like, I should be taking advantage of that during COVID, put a sign. These pews have been infected with COVID. That's the best way to kind of... <laughs> um, but the best seat also, and Jesus is going to start talking about this, especially in Luke 14. He goes off on a rant on the Pharisees for like three chapters here. Um, but like the seat of honor in, at the meals, at the feast, the, 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 the first, the, like the seat of honor at the end of the table. So remember Jesus going off about that. People wanting to sit in these, the seats that are held in honor as the main thing. Because they're mostly concerned about what other people think about them. What is esteemed to be honorable from, by others? Same with the greetings in the marketplaces. They want to be seen by others. They want to be recognized as important by others. So this is all about this external focus. Again, what he said earlier, care about cleaning the outside, but the inside is dirty. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. You know, that's a weird thing to say. What is it? What's he saying? What's he getting at? If, you're an un, if he's calling the Pharisees an unmarked grave, really, I mean, what's, what's in it? What do you put in a grave? A dead body. So you, you can't, if you're looking at it, you can't tell. It's unmarked. You can't tell that it's a grave, but it's really dead. But even worse so is that 
if there's a dead body there, what are the Jews, especially according to the temple purity laws from like numbers, what are they not supposed to ever touch? Death. And I mean, really too, I mean, there's a sense of reverence. Um, it's, it's nice to, when you're at a, when you're at a cemetery, you, it's like for Gail, Gail's burial a couple weeks ago, it's just really weird. You, you drive around a cemetery, it's like a one lane road and it's like a, it's a maze. I've been in these cemeteries many, many times and I get lost every time. <laughs> like, where am I? And trying to turn around. And what I want to do is flip a Yui in the grass next to the, but I can't do that. There's these little barriers in the way, right? These little stone inconveniences. Uh, or if I'm trying to walk to where the burial is and the quickest way is to just go right there. But I don't want to do that because I got to step over all these. So, so I'm not worried about it making me unclean it, but it's about reverence, right? So, and, and as a side note, there, there's, there's a reverence to why we treat the body the way we do. Uh, we, need, we need to focus on that for a second. Over against the Gnostic idea that our body, like this life is, our bodies are only good for this life and then they're just going to throw it away. It's an empty shell. Uh, the body means nothing at this point. So it doesn't matter what you do with the body. Well, Jesus thinks differently. God thinks differently. Uh, so when God created, God created these bodies in, him, in his image. So there's a high view of the body. And so we, we, are, we take great care to be reverent to the body and, how, and what we do with it. Um, and so a lot of times in the history of Christianity, um, Christians were the only ones to bury their dead. Think Job, we read it at Easter. I know, I believe that, I know that my Redeemer lives and with my eyes, I will see the Lord. It talks about in the last day, my body will waste away and then my body's gonna rise up and I will see the Lord with my eyes. So there's this idea, this, this strong confession amongst believers in Yahweh and the Old Testament into the New Testament that our bodies have value. And so we bury the body and then the body will rise up. Now we know that the body is gonna decompose um, with, uh, with, the, with the wonders of embalmment these days, it certainly decomposes much, much slower than, than the normal progression of things. But still, the body turns to dust. So we're not, we don't get wrapped up on like cremations and, and like when bodies are lost at sea or when there's explosions or things like that. But in the history of Christianity, body, Christian bodies were burned as a disgrace to the Christian. As if to say, you believe in the resurrection of the body? Well, resurrect this. So they burn the bodies to, to kind of shame the Christians. And then as you fast forward in the, in the dark ages and, and in the practices in the early church, when it was held that somebody was not a Christian, they were burned. What do you do with witches? Burn the witches. Why do we burn the witches? Because they weigh more than a duck. Anybody? No? What's that? They'll turn you into a newt. <laughs> Very limited. Uh, I'm surprised more of you didn't get that joke. But well, the idea was if you got a witch, 
I mean, in the context of that movie, obviously they're making fun of a half-truth and the history of, of Christianity, but you have somebody who's putting forth non-biblical spirituality, demonic spirituality. They're, be, they're burned in contrast to those who are buried. So Christians generally would bury their dead. In our context today, where cremations are, are very common, uh, so no one cremates, t- typically, no one's cremating their their family, their beloved ones, as a disgrace to them or to shame them or over and against their confession of the resurrection. So we don't want to, we don't want to guilt anyone's conscience, but generally speaking, the historic practice of the Christian church has been to bury the body uh, because the Lord said he's going to resurrect the body. And we don't want to bring any kind of like, uh, um, we don't want to burden anyone's conscience who have, who have cremated their loved ones or, or seek cremation for themselves. But just general, generally speaking, that's, we're, we're reverent in the way we treat the body, even if that's cremation. If that's like we're reverently, the body's here, it's dead, it's dead in the hospital or whatever it is. We're going to reverently take this body to the crematorium. Or we're going to reverently have this body burned. We're going to reverently take these ashes uh, and we're going to p- place these ashes in the ground. Uh, by, and that's another thing. We, don't, we, we strongly discourage the spreading of ashes because that's another Gnostic idea that when I die, I become one with creation. And so I, I always love this park bench. And so when I die, spread me at this park bench so you'll know I'll always be with you at this park bench. I'm not going to be with you at the park bench. I'm in heaven or not. But my body is here waiting for the resurrection on the last day. So you can go to the bench and remember me, but it's better, I mean, again, the historic Christian practice would be to place the, the, the cremains or the body in the ground so you can go to that place and remember that person. Visit the body of that person. Um, so we want, to be, we want to be reverent with the body. There's nothing to do with verse 44, but uh, the idea of unmarked graves uh, touching dead things, causing uncleanliness, defiling a person without even knowing it. So how are the Pharisees defiling people? What are they teaching? Yeah, Chris? Well, if they're truly dead, so Jesus is, so they're not actually dead. Jesus is saying they're like unmarked graves because they're defiling people who come into contact with them. So how is it that the Pharisees are bringing defilement to people in the same way that a dead person would? But teaching, teaching what? What's the thing, what's the main thing that they're doing? What are they teaching? Yeah, well, ultimately it would be self-righteousness. Right? So I, there's, a, there's a way that I'm going to keep the law in a way that pleases God which is me trying to make myself clean in God's eyes apart from any way that he's trying to make me clean. And that's nothing but defilement. For me to stand before God on my own cleanness is to stand defiled, right? And so the Pharisees are saying, the only way for you to be clean before God is to clean yourself. And here's how to do it, boom, boom, boom. And so here you are thinking, okay, I've done these things. If you've really, really done your best, and followed all these prescriptions and done the best you possibly can, then you actually think you're clean, which is the most defiling status at all, of all. To stand before God as one who thinks they are clean on their own. 
in contrast to one who looks at the law, and this is, this is probably more common, to stand before those, to stand before the law and just being totally convicted by it, condemned by it. This is why the, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, sinners, just the generic term, they're always flocking to Jesus because they realize how just unclean and defiled they are. And so they're like, I got nowhere to turn with this defile. I can't clean myself. No matter what I do, no matter what I try, I'm completely dirty. And they're going to Jesus and he's cleaning them. So then, uh, so yeah, fo- a focus on externals, this judgment, judgment of others, a failure to show mercy. Um, these are all the, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Then a lawyer answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry. No, he said, oh, you brought attention to yourself? Here you go. So he, he brings the law to them. And he said, woe to you lawyers also. So again, these are lawyers, not necessarily in the, in the sense that we think about lawyers, like ambulance chasers or whatever, or whatever the sense, all the jokes that go along with lawyers. This would be the lawyers are experts in the law. Which, whose law? Not the Constitution of the United States, but God's law. So they're experts in the law. So in many ways they're functioning just like the Pharisees and the scribes too. The scribes are known for keeping the law really, really well because they're copying it over and over and over again. They know it really, really well. For you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So how are they loading them with burdens? So, so adding, adding things. So the Lord has given the law here and said, you must do this to be righteous. And really, when you let the law do its work, it's always condemning us. But the Pharisees say, okay, here's the law but I'm actually gonna surround it with all these extra things to do. So you can either make yourself extra righteous or make sure that you really don't get anywhere close to breaking this commandment. So the law says to honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And so I'm gonna make sure you keep the day holy by limiting how many steps you can take in a day. Limiting how much, how many sips of water you can have in a day. So we're adding things to the law to make sure that we don't get anywhere close to breaking it. So we're adding all these burdens and don't even help them relieve the burdens. They're supposed to be helping relieve the burdens. How? And the most despairing thing there is like, so when, when God gives us 10 commandments, I am the Lord your God, you are my people Israel, I led you out of the Red Sea, um, I've given you all these wonderful gifts, and since you're my people, here's what you're gonna do, you're gonna honor my name, remember the Sabbath, 
uh, love each other, don't, don't steal a person's wife, don't, commit, don't kill one another, don't take their stuff, don't, don't covet their stuff because you're my people. And when you, when you do any of those things in the commandments, you cut yourself off from being my people. And so for, the, for the, the Israelite or the Christian, we see our sin under the law as it, it, it causes this immediate fear of, I've cut myself off from God. That's how serious my sin is. And so Jesus takes that from me, my, my being cut off from God. He takes that upon himself. He's cut off from God. He gives me his holiness. That's what's happening. But so instead of that conversation of repent, the law doing its job and turning me to God in repentance and receiving the forgiveness from Christ, it is, I'm going to try to keep the law according to these man-made precepts so that a person, imagine it, a person actually going through life thinking they have kept the law only because they've done what the, what the lawyer or the Pharisee told them to do. And so keep these these prescriptions, and so you actually can sit down at the end of the day on, on Sunday or Saturday and say, well, I didn't take 40 steps today. I'm doing pretty good, right? And so I'm, I'm, this is self-righteousness. I've actually done it. I don't need, if I, and if I've done the law, I don't need saving, which is the most, the most terrible thing. That's why, the, that's why Jesus is getting especially frustrated because if the law is set free to do its work, it's gonna turn the people back in repentance. But instead they're weakening the law from, it, from doing what it should be doing. And they're adding to it this other layer of, of man-made works that doesn't do any good, at least. That's a great, that's a great point, Lisa. I think St. Augustine would say there are two ways, the way of life and the way of death. It's that simple. And so the way of death is this way of self-righteousness. So if, I, if I'm living outside of Yahweh or outside of Christ, it seems to be the way of life. It masquerades as the way of life, but ultimately it is only the way of death. And in contrast, the way of life is actually through death. So think about, so Jesus says, uh, if, you want to keep your, if you want to keep your life eternally, you're going to lose it, right? So if you, so this, and how does Jesus bring life but through death? It turns everything upside down. And so the world comes and tries to bring this focus on life. I mean, Pastor Barton said an excellent sermon today kind of drawing out that distinction between the way of life and the way of death. Keith. focus righteousness that's coming from ritual is their focus and so i i think we can take a just a quick a quick pause there and kind of flip it back on our context today where we're not in like israelite times when you got pharisees running around making all these human prescriptions for righteousness and yet are there not human prescriptions for righteousness apart from god's word a plenty in our culture today 
How is a person to be righteous in today's society? Well, so you, what you just said was certainly true in 1993. Dave said, be a good family person, go to church all the time, and then you're a righteous person. Not today. You do that today, you're actually part of the problem. You're square. But what is it to be righteous? I mean, in fact, going to church is of the realm of religion, and that's bad. Spirituality is, is okay. But not even that. You, you, can, you don't need to be spiritual or religious as long as you what? You're, as long as you're woke. Well, what does that mean? So, you know, the, so, the, so for me to be woke would be for me to realize that there's some sort of oppression that's happening and then for me to fight against that oppression. Behind that, we try to say, to use the Christian language would be to, to try to love your neighbor. So they're identifying these systems of oppression. It's all this Marxist ideas. But if you don't recognize those things um, and, and bow down to that perception of reality, then you're part of the problem and you're unrighteous. So if you're not, if you're not ascribing to today's, whatever today's um, assertions are, then you're, then you're not righteous. And by the way, not only are you not righteous, but you can't actually... There's no, there's no way to repent of it. What happens to you if you're, if you're deemed to be unrighteous by the culture? What happens to you? You get canceled, and can you ever get out? No. The only, the only recourse for you is, is permanent apology, the, term, the permanent posture of, of uh, apology from which you can never actually get out. There's no, there's no forgiveness actually given. Because there's no atonement for sins made. So in our, in our concept, Christ's atonement is happening on the cross. So he's won the forgiveness of sins by taking the punishment that we deserve. But if you've wronged somebody in a system where there's no atonement made, you can apologize all you want, but you still haven't been punished. So punishment's always kind of like, it's always coming. See? So when somebody, apart from Christ, someone talks about forgiveness, it's hard to understand what that even means if there's not an atonement for sins. Same concept with when we talk about forgiving debts. I can't walk up to you and say, I forgive you your mortgage. Well, I can say that all I want. I can, but I can say that to everybody. But what hasn't actually happened? I don't have to do anything. I just said the words. It's like, I declare bankruptcy. <laughs> I don't, I haven't, I, just because I declared it doesn't mean it's true. You, you're still stuck with the mortgage. Or if I actually do say I'm going to pay your mortgage and actually I have to pay it, right? So it has to be atoned for somehow. So in a culture that has nobody atoning for these sins, why are we surprised that the only recourse is cancellation and perpetual penance for that? But that's, you're going to be really skeptical of that when, when culture's holding up somebody as righteous. And, and I, I encourage you to do this. Watch the news. Actually, don't watch it. I encourage you to not watch the news. But if you ever find yourself watching the news, or notice who is being upheld as, as good. 
and who is being upheld as bad or put down as bad and ask why. Why are they, you kind of sift through. And this is really remarkable. Neil Postman wrote, wrote on this back in the 80s. Like the news is very masterful in the way it puts forth what is good and evil. And we just kind of subliminally take it in without carefully thinking about what they're saying. But the way that a headline is written tells you what is good and evil. The way that abortion is described, the way that homosexuality. So, so churches who um, condemn homosexuality, blah, 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 whatever the headline is. So, so now it comes out as we're condemning homosexuality. So how about churches who, up, who uphold the sanctity of marriage? That's a different way to say the same thing. Um, those who would try to save the lives of babies versus those who are trying to take away a woman's right to choose. See, the same headline, said two different ways. And it's, so this is all, what is, what is righteous? The culture has a different understanding of what is righteous because they're operating with a different sense of good and evil, right and wrong, different sense of morality. So you gotta be careful when you're reading the news, you gotta kind of sift through and ask, it's, I mean, it's kind of fun. What, what, is, what is the righteousness here? What is the good? And then laugh at like, this is really masterful of how they're trying to deceive me. And you can't, the, the weather can't even be said in a way that's not trying to deceive you. It's remarkable. Uh, let's see. Woe to you, for you build the tomb, verse 47, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So first, I mean, building the tombs, you think it wouldn't be a bad, it's not a bad thing to, to actually, who, 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 the people who put Jesus in a tomb, were they his enemies or his fans? His, his biggest supporters, the loyal ones. Um, so the, to build the tomb for the prophets seems like it's a good, you, you build the tombs for the prophets but then he turns it on them. You are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. So it's not that you're building the tombs to honor them. You're building the tombs to trap them in. You're complicit in this, in this sin against them. So who are the prophets who were killed? Well, like all the prophets of the Old Testament, all the minor prophets, let's think through. I mean, he mentions here in a little bit, he's gonna mention Zechariah. But if you think through the Old Testament, the prophets who were always killed what kinds of things are they saying? Repent. They're speaking God's truth and they're saying what's happening here is evil. Turn from the evil and receive the mercy of God. And what are the, pro the, 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 the ancestors of the Pharisees, what are they saying? Don't repent, there's no problem here. Eat, drink and be merry. There's nothing to repent from. Kill the prophets so that is, is, if that's not like easily seen today as well, it's, it's, you, can't, you don't have to look hard to see it today. So to uphold some kind of a truth is to be persecuted. And so you got the Pharisees who are killing the prophets, putting them in the tombs. Ultimately, that is to turn away from God's word, to look away from God's truth, is to build the tombs of the prophets. Uh, and I, to, to not just point the finger at society or, or the Pharisees, but also to have it pointed at us would be, how do we 
How do we suppress God's word in our lives, in, in your life? How would you be said to build the tombs for the prophets? Well, when we don't rightly, gladly hear and learn God's word, when we don't prioritize the things of God over the things of this life, when the things of this world cause us anxiety over against the things of God. So all these things, we're not really surprised. We should be convicted of these things. We always are because we're in our sinful flesh. But we don't want to be, I just don't want to spend all of our time pointing at, Barton said a great line last week. He said, we don't want to spend our time attacking dragons that aren't in the room. There's plenty of dragons here. Like in my own life, rather than focusing on the sins of the Pharisees, when Jesus is railing against the Pharisees, it's written down here for you. So we got to think about, so what are the, the ways that I'm suppressing the word or not living by God's word, not rejoicing in um, his word of repentance. The life of the Christian is a daily life of repentance. That is a daily, uh, daily turning from sin. So as Luther puts it in the catechism, you start off the day, you make the sign of the cross and you kill the old Adam. Every day starts off with murder. <laughs> Uh, we start off the day killing the old sinful flesh and resist fighting against the sinful self and live, striving to live a godly and Christian life every day, right? Turning away from the old self, turning to God, and then also always kind of being tempted to turn back and then resist turning back to God. Confessing my sin, handing it over to God, receiving the forgiveness of sin. Daily, a daily life of repentance. And that's, that's nothing other than to let God's word have its, have its way with us, to, for his word to convict us of our sin and turn us to him. But we, we, shield, we turn away from that, right? We, we run to different gods in our moments of trial. We think that the answer to my anxiety is going to be found in some temporal solution. Um, we try to numb our pain with temporal solutions, distract, distract from our problems with temporal uh, pleasures. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, remember Cain killed Abel and his blood cried out from the ground for justice. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed for being faithful in Second Chronicles who perish between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Jesus has only talked about keys like a couple of times, and it's always in reference to the same thing. What, 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 what do keys do? They unlock things. So when Jesus talks about keys unlocking stuff, what's he getting at? What's he unlocking? What's he getting us into? Him, heaven, eternal life. So we talk about the office of the keys being that which unlocks heaven by the forgiveness of sins. So that's the absolution. Here too, they've got this key of knowledge, this key of God's mercy and forgiveness, and yet they're suppressing it. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So the people who were actually going towards Christ's righteousness, 
they're actually turning them away from that by confusing God's word. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Try and trip, track, trap Jesus so that he can accuse him and kill him, which is super ironic because what is Jesus just said that they're guilty of? Killing the, the prophets. And so they're getting, they're getting mad about this. I can't believe he would say such things of me killing the prophets. We should kill him. I would, never, I would never do such things. That's evil. Let's kill him. This exposes their, their hardness of heart. Now, again, I said this last time, what Jesus is doing and even bothering to talk to the Pharisees is the very work of repentance that's happening to them and to us. Otherwise, why would Jesus bother talking to them at all? But by engaging in conversation with the Pharisees, he's giving them the gift of repentance. Hopefully, but not all of them turn. Only a few of them maybe even do. But think about uh, Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea. There's, good, there's Pharisees who ultimately are turned and brought to repentance and faith. And that's from this conversation with them. So Jesus will continue his rant against the Pharisees in chapter uh, 12, where Jesus begins going off beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He talks about the Pharisees for a few more verses. Um, and then we get into the parable of the rich fool. So I don't know if we'll make it that far next week. Actually, we won't make it that far at all next week. Next week, Church Family Sunday. Uh, please don't, don't forget that, first of all. And, and please stick around. So the service is at 9.30. And we've designed that intentionally so that we can get everybody together. When you guys... Our regular Bible study attendees, the idea is that you're always here, you kind of see each other, and you kind of know you're sitting at the same table with people, you kind of know each other pretty well. Uh, we want to encourage that amongst others, right? So you know you've got a good friend who doesn't stick around for Bible class, who you they're your best friends, they're always coming to church. Like, invite them, first of all, invite them to come to Bible class. Hey, stick around, sit with me. Uh, keep inviting them. But also, uh, this coming Sunday, Church Family Sunday, is just to, just to see more people, get to know more folks. Also, uh, Jacqueline's going to have a, uh, lots of different ways to get involved, uh, things to sign up for throughout the course of the year. Um, so if you're interested in plugging in somewhere, the best way to get to know more folks at church is to plug in somewhere. Jump into choir, even if you don't sing very well. Don Knotts did it, right? Uh, so get, but get to know more folks. Um, it's, it, the best way to do it is to plug in somewhere in, in your church. So we'll look forward to that next week, and then we'll continue Bible studies uh, after that. Any questions or comments on anything from today? The Lord be with you.